Hey everyone, Sean here. Before we get into this week's episode, I've got a special announcement for you. I mentioned on last week's episode that we have our Hypergrowth San Francisco conference coming up on November 18th in San Francisco. And I asked a bunch of you if you were interested to reach out to me and a bunch of you did. And so we decided to do something special for listeners of the Operations Podcast. We have a special code for you. The code is OPERATIONS99. This will get you a discounted ticket of for $99 into Hypergrowth San Francisco. This ticket is usually $599. So use this code. We want to see you there. Again, it's Hypergrowth San Francisco, November 18th. If you want more information, go to hypergrowth.drift.com. And remember, the code is OPERATIONS99. Thanks so much. Now on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Operations, the show where we look under the hood of companies in hypergrowth. My name is Sean Lane. Let's play a game. If you were to look at your calendar for, say, next week, how much time would you have blocked off for actually doing real work? Actually, scratch that. Not just time blocked off for doing work, but rather time blocked off for just thinking about the work you have to do. Time blocks to just think. Today's guest, Ian Messy, calls these time slots on his calendar building blocks, and he protects them religiously as a part of his work as the head of revenue operations at Bloomreach, the maker of a digital experience platform. My favorite part of this episode is that in listening back, there's a clear point where I shamelessly transition from being the host to just an audience member, asking the questions I hope all of you would have if you had the chance to sit down with Ian yourselves. In addition to teaching me about how to think deeply about problems, he talks about how he recognizes the value of unsexy projects, including, and don't fall asleep on me here, governance. And it's okay to cringe a little bit when you hear that word now, but by the end of the episode, you'll hear Ian's take on why governance isn't about slowing down progress, but rather it's about not breaking things in the process of progress. Ian's career actually went in reverse of some of our previous guests. While guests like Kyle Morris went from practitioner to consultant, Ian was the opposite, which I learned has its pros and cons. In fact, prior to joining Bloomreach, he worked at Blue Wolf and he co-founded Go Nimbly with guests from our previous episode, Jason Reichel. So to start, I wanted to learn about Ian's transition from years in consulting to becoming an operator right in the middle of a company growing in hypergrowth. From the beginning of my career, I've been in professional services and it's been really interesting because I've, I've seen so many different business models I've seen so many different company sizes, company structures, all kinds of different things. I've seen the, the pros and cons that <laughs> of um, organizing operational structures, the different ways you can structure an operational team, all the way from large enterprise companies down to startups that were a few years in. So I think consulting is great. I think it's a great way to gain experience. And it, we used to joke around when we were at Blue Wolf that it was kind of like a, an MBA program. Mm. <laughs> I really enjoy consulting, but at a certain point, I wanted, to, I wanted to have the experience of actually owning the entire architecture, owning the entire, and, I, and when I use architecture, I'm not just talking about technical architecture, but you know, process and, and things mm. like that from end to end. As a consultant, there, there have been a f- quite a few times in my career where I've been able to manage large projects that were kind of all-inclusive, 
but you still get to a certain point where you hand off the project. Yeah, you don't get to stick around for the either the implementation or like the results, right? The impact. Yeah, a lot of times the impact, the actual impact to the organization is is more conceptual for you or theoretical for you and you don't get to see it day to day. Ian was drawn to the concept of owning something. And this reminded me of our very first episode of Operations with my boss, Will Collins, who came from a banking and VC background, but he felt the same pull to working inside of a company rather than just investing in one. So when Ian did make the jump to Bloomreach in December of 2018, I was curious, did he find himself assessing his new situation with the mindset of a consultant? Oh yeah, for sure. I think the biggest struggle for me is Normally, I'd go into an engagement or a new engagement at a client and I'd get the, we did what we call business process review, where we'd go end to end from, you know, lead sources all the way through to billing and customer success. I did that at Bloomreach. What I didn't have the ability to do and what I, I think, you know, looking back on it, I wish I would have pushed back on this more is, you know, you don't have the time that you would as a consultant or the or even the team to build out, you know, the documentation and do the presentations and with the C-suite and, you know, things that you would normally do as a consultant, you would want to think about how you communicate this out to the organization. And I think I made a mistake of kind of taking that as taking that for granted, like, oh, they'll understand the value of what I'm providing, or they'll understand when I talk about the need for X, Y, or Z project, it'll be kind of evident. And I won't need to do all this documentation that I did as a consultant, you know, nice presentations and things like that. As a consultant, I felt the need to sell projects. I kind of went away from that when I first joined Bloomreach, but I think that that was a misstep in hindsight. I think I should have definitely not taken for granted the communication side of selling projects and and things like that. This is such an important lesson for operators. We can get sucked into the work we're doing so easily, or we can know the value and the intricacies of what we're working on, but we can forget to communicate or, or sell that value elsewhere. And Ian, he realized that. The time he had had to make slide decks and present his findings as a consultant was no longer built into the job. And in my mind, it's not just about selling the project you've decided to work on. It's about justifying it against all the other things you could be working on. Ian told me he struggled with this at first, with competing responsibilities for the CRO, the CMO, the CFO. You get it. Ian came to Bloomreach when it was over 400 employees already and had raised just shy of $100 million in funding. So I was curious, at a company like that, what kind of challenges did he find when he first arrived? I was not surprised by the types of problems that they had. Coming into organizations, one of the things that you realize as a consultant is you come in and everyone's got problems. Even seeing my own clients up on stage at Dreamforce or up on stage <laughs> at, at Saster or something like that, where they're presenting these these glorious visions, you know, you know, you know where the skeletons lie. <laughs> You're like, uh, yeah, that sounds nice, but it actually, I think I was prepared mentally for what I experienced at Bloomreach. The ops resources that they've had, well, in sales ops, they didn't have a sales ops resource for, I think, nine months or so uh, before before I joined. And the the resource that they had before, very very smart guy and very very talented. I actually worked with him a bit when I was at GoNimbly, but he was the lone operation resource. So you can only do so much. And then the the guy who took over that role 
also very, very smart, very talented guy, but he, he was also the head of marketing and also led the SDR teams. So operations was his like sixth job, you know? So I kind of was prepared for that. You know, my boss, the, the CRO is, is a straight shooter. And he, he told me he did not pull his punches in the interview process. So I, I was prepared for it. And uh, on top of Bloomreach uh, did an acquisition a couple years before I joined of a CMS platform based in Amsterdam. So and I've I've done org merges. I've done lots of them. I've I've been a part of a lot of acquisitions from both sides. I know how much work an org merge is. I know that the operations team at that time was not resourced for it. So I kind of was prepared for data quality issues and things like that that I've experienced. So here's the thing. If you're at a company that's smaller than Bloomreach or smaller than Drift and you have maybe less funding, take solace in the fact that everyone has problems. Everyone has some form of operational debt. So Ian, he set out to fill in some of the gaps that he saw. And he told me that he always starts by looking at the handoffs in the customer journey and more specifically points that he could find friction. Now, Ian may not have had the experience as a practitioner inside of a company at that point yet, but what he did have was his years of consulting experience. And if there's one thing you learn as a consultant, it's how to approach problem solving. Ian not only taught me about his approach to problem solving, but also how he sets aside time to think deeply about those problems. This is something that is super challenging in any role, really, but but actually thinking, building time in your day to think deeply about problems. I do uh, time blocks on my calendar that I call building blocks, but usually that's me thinking about problems and putting them to paper, trying to formulate solutions. And that's that's a challenging thing, especially when you're, uh, I mean, both as a consultant and in-house, you know, your calendar fills up so quickly and you can easily spend your whole day in meetings talking about problems, but never, never thinking. About and are them. you like religious about protecting those blocks, those building blocks on your calendar? Like I think it in theory, everyone says, yeah, great. I, I block off these times of my day, but all of a sudden those things can get overrun. Are, are you really strict about those building block periods? Yeah. And I'm fortunate enough that my, my colleagues are, are, are behind me that. on it. So they, they're very supportive of these kind of deep think periods. And at, at Go Nimbly, we, they're what we call cave days, mm. <laughs> where people walk off almost entire days to make sure they're thinking deeply about problems. That's amazing. So can you give me an example or take me through like a recent session you've had of a deep think? Another one is our, our loss analysis. When we're thinking through why we lose a deal, everyone's got the close lost reason. And I was on a call with Forrester. I was on a call with some Forrester folks. They had this tool that was used to find problems in the top of the marketing funnel. I had this up on my, on my screen, this, this tool, because I was going to apply it to the top of the marketing funnel. And then as I was, I was in one of my building blocks thinking about loss analysis and how, how nuanced it actually is, you know, you can't, you can't boil it down into one loss reason in a complex enterprise level sale, you know. So I, I was thinking about this problem and I just happened to kind of stare off into space and realize that I was staring at this sheet. It's got, they call it the diagnostic hypothesis map. It's basically a heat map for where, where problems are in, in any process. And I was like, oh, you know, let's apply this to our loss analysis. 
I've got this series of uh, questions organized by the customer lifecycle that basically give us insight into where the problems were in the deal. When we applied this tool, if I wouldn't have had that time set aside to think deeply about that, I would have probably just been like, okay, what are our lost reasons? Because that's typically what one does, you know, and, and just, just put them into Salesforce. But uh, because I, I set aside this time, we were able to come up with a creative solution that has offered insights that we wouldn't have otherwise had. And, you know, this is obviously from the way you're describing it, it sounds to me like a a pretty solitary activity. How do you then translate that? Is there there a process where you have someone on your team that you then, hey, like, can I whiteboard this for you? Can I bounce this off of you? What's kind of your sanity check so you don't come out of one of those thinking sessions and you think you're off on the amazing track and all of a sudden you realize that you're solving a completely different problem? Yeah, that is a great question. And it is it is more, I found that it has been more of a solitary exercise uh, coming in-house at Bloomreach. But in the, in the past, you know, I have, I have colleagues that I b- bounce ideas off of, of course, that I trust and are, are really smart people. But in the past, at, when I was at Blue Wolf, we had this problem. People weren't thinking through their the entire solution. They weren't thinking through the downstream effects of their solution. Blue Wolf, the way back then, the way they hired for the team that I was on, they were hiring people, young people who did not have ops experience necessarily, which turned out to be an advantage. But at first, they weren't used to solving these ops problems. And so this was uh, Jason Reichel, uh, who you spoke about earlier. He and I worked on this team at Blue Wolf, and we he, together, we tried to solve this problem. And what we came up with is solution review. So, you know, the, the project teams were typically a project manager, an analyst that did most of the like configuration, like Salesforce configuration, and a developer. Those were typically a typical project team. So they would, they would ingest a problem that they heard from one of their clients they would put together a solution and we templatized the solution documentation. And then they would come into twice a week. We had, we had uh, meetings called solution reviews. So they would come and they would present their solution to the broader team. And it was, it was a way to get everybody's brain on, on one particular problem and to poke holes in, in each other's solutions and to learn from the solutions that were presented. And I think that that's one of the most successful things that we implemented while we were at Blue Wolf. I think the sum of Ian's two different practices here is much more powerful than each practice on its own. If you combined his deep think sessions on a particular problem with his solution review idea that you have with your peers, I think the end results will be much more thorough and impactful. On our operations team here at Drift, we run many ops show and tells. Once a month at our team meetings, where one member of the team gets up and presents to the rest of the team on a specific topic that is important to them or something that they've been working on. This not only allows them to show off their work, but it also gives the rest of the team the chance to learn something about what else is going on inside of ops. It lets them ask questions, poke holes. Everyone on the team gets better as a result. And Ian's been through a lot of these cycles, both as a consultant and now at Bloomreach. And he told me that a theme that he has noticed is that you really oftentimes can forget about the unsexy projects, the ones that are harder to articulate the short-term value. As a consultant, you go in and you, especially organizations that have kind of organically structured their ops, you know, ops environments over time, there's a lot of structural issues that are not 
the value of fixing those structural problems are not apparent right away to someone who is not usually if you're dealing with an IT resource they'll they'll inherently know the the value of let's say code quality it's not as inherently valuable to the CMO or the head of sales or a VP of sales especially cuz a lot of those things aren't necessarily short term wins so if your company is going through high growth that's not it's not something that they can feel or experience you know that day that week that month exactly and we you know we t- we touched on earlier in this conversation we touched on kind of selling the value of projects to your stakeholders and that is difficult to do when the, the the value is down the road this will make it so that we can go public without <laughs> you know spending a million dollars on data cleanup or something like that you know it's it's really hard to communicate the value of that and even tie it to revenue even though it is it's hard to tie those things to revenue and that's really what it takes to sell the value of a project to a CEO or a CMO or a CCRO. Is there something on that list of unsexy projects that you have tackled since you got to Bloomreach and you feel like you were able to tie some type of value to? I, you know, I wish I could say that everything is peachy, but it's it's not. It's a you know, it's a constant struggle, and that's that's one of the things that that is is also hard to communicate when people are like, "When is this X, Y, or Z project going to be done?" And the answer is. It's never done. <laughs> you always have to care about data quality. You always have to care about code quality. But I think, you know, coming in, I, I did I did put together a governance program. I did put together, I applied the code quality structures that we developed at Go Nimbly to, to Bloomreach. So for example, we had, uh, we had some co- uh, contractors building out our, our support portal. They adhered to the code quality standards that, that we put together. So those those types of things are important because the let's say well for example on that support portal project they eventually hired a firm that was legitimately concerned about code quality and and very very talented solution architect the initial firm that they were working with went live with a trigger and this was I I think I was like 3 months in went live with a trigger that that completely shut off any ability to update uh, opportunities. It's ba- basically lockdown <laughs> opportunities for us. And it took me, it took me several hours to figure out what had gone on, what had happened, because I didn't know that they were doing a deployment. So you're you're actually you're making me realize that there's this whole other side to like this superpower that you have now, which is you are probably. Uh, probably a little bit of a pain to consultants at this point, but you are probably like the most well-informed, well-prepared client of consultants at this point in time, which which I think is incredible. So like the code quality thing, can you like for someone who's about to, you know, maybe outsource a project to someone for, for their instance of Salesforce or for whatever, like what's an example of something that you absolutely make sure that they have to adhere to? It's an entire governance process, right? And uh, you you say governance and a lot of people in startups kind of cringe when you say governance cuz yeah, yeah, think yeah. of like bureaucracy and slowing down progress and and things like that. That's not the intent of governance. The intent on governance, a governance process is to make sure that you're not breaking things in in the process of progress. Can you define for you then like okay, you came into Bloomreach, you you wrote a governance program. Can you define for us 
what do you think of when you think of governance? What, what, what is the purpose that it's serving? I mean, if, if we're talking about the MVP of governance is a deployment process, making sure that, that these folks are working in the sandbox, that no one is making changes in production, that they're promoting from a developer sandbox to a full sandbox, that you're running test scripts, that they have well-written test scripts, that they have well-written unit tests if it involves code, and that the deployments go smoothly. And making sure that you know if you're in charge of operations, you've got to make sure that you're on top of deployments. Because you know if you've got a lot of contractors, or as I've seen at lots of organizations I've worked with, you've got 12 people with admin access to Salesforce, <laughs> or you know every every marketer is a admin to Marketo or Eloqua. You've got to make sure that those people are not making changes directly in Salesforce or directly in production. I mean, and for everyone that you're talking about, because I completely can identify with like the the cringe, like oh man, like governance, all these rules, like we, we gotta we have to you know slow down. It's this is going to hinder us, like. There is a long, there's a long play there. That investment that you're making now, both in terms of what it will yield you later, but also the work it'll save you later, right? Absolutely. And and it makes it makes it so that you don't run into problems in future deployments. You hire a contractor to do one project, let's say, you know, you hire a, a developer, let's say, to to write a trigger for you. And the trigger is pretty simple. But you could be accidentally laying traps for yourself in the future when you go to deploy and there's that you don't have code coverage. You know, that's something that we, we're struggling with at Bloomreach right now is we have terrible code coverage because our, we've been in business for 10 years and, uh, and, you know, people didn't prioritize unit tests in the past. So that's something that now I have to go and sell to my bosses. Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend X amount of dollars basically in hours to fix all these unit tests and make sure that we have a solid foundation on which to build. And that runs that that causes problems with every deployment I do. You know, I I never know what I get when what I'm going to get when I hit the but the deploy button, you know. <laughs> I I never know what to expect. You're coming into a mature organization, right? Like the they've been people have been building on top of building on top of building all in the previous years before you got there. I call that untangling the Christmas lights. It's a bit exclusionary, the the imagery, but like my grandma had 50 years of Christmas lights in her attic. And every year you'd have to go and figure out which ones worked and untangle all the wires and figure it out to, to be able to set up the Christmas lights. So then I, I need your help, right? So I, I am just as much a audience member of this show as I am the host. So one of the things that I need help with is we're growing really fast at Drift. And when you talk about building a strong foundation, one of the things that I try to like make a distinction about with my team is, you know, sometimes in order to continue to move fast, yeah, maybe you have to put a Band-Aid on something, but you never want to build on top of a Band-Aid, right? And so how would you recommend or advise a company that's going through hypergrowth to make sure that they are building those strong foundations, even though you know it's never going to be perfect? How can I avoid a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, having a huge heaping nest of Christmas lights to untangle? That's always going to be challenge. And I, I even struggle with it myself. I, you know, like I'm doing what I said my clients used to do on stage. You know, painting a rosy picture. I, I'm not good at this necessarily. It's a constant challenge. 
I think the way the way that you mitigate that the, those types of risk, you're always going to have to put on band aids every now and then. Even as a you know hyper mature organization, you're going to have to deal with band aids every now and then. One of those is estimating out your projects so that you're you're not having to you don't commit to something that you realize you don't actually have the time to complete. So you have to you have to change the solution to band aid rather than to rather than to actually solve the problem in a, in a scalable fashion. Two is to recognize when you're using Band-Aids and document those and put them on your backlog so that you fix them in the future. Because often what happens, especially at, at SaaS organizations or PaaS organizations or technology organizations in general, is an ops resource will leave and no one, w- no one will know where the skeletons lie. You know, It's basically time bombs for the future. So if you, if you can build into your process documentation and documenting these band-aids so that the next person that steps into your role knows where to do them. And the guy, the guy that handed over to me did an excellent job. He basically just recorded video after video after video of everything he built. You know, and and I've I've used those. Uh, his name's Adam, and he's hilarious and, and brilliant. I've used those so often. I've returned to those videos to figure out what this functionality is trying to accomplish and why he built it this way. And he talked me through all those in videos. Before we go, at the end of each show, we're going to ask each guest the same lightning round of questions. Ready? Here we go. Best book you've read in the last six months? Oh man, uh, not related to sales ops at all, but it's a book about called October about the uh, <laughs> about the Russian Revolution in 1917. It's a very narrative uh, narrative uh, version of that, and it's it's excellent. Amazing! I will have to check that out. All right, <laughs> favorite part about working in ops? You know, I think. Uh, your your episode with Jayzak. Uh, Jayzak said, "What what did he say? You you know you have to be kind of like a business athlete. You have to be able to to change positions. You know you have to you see a lot of different parts of the the business. And I think that that's my my favorite thing. I I like n- learning new things and tackling new problems. And that's that's uh, every day is new in in operations. For sure, for sure, never a dull moment. Least yeah. favorite part about working in ops. Ooh. Spreadsheets. <laughs> I hate spreadsheets. Just all of them in general? Yes. Especially ones that are big and monstrous and businesses run off of them. I will take it. Someone who impacted you getting the job you have today. You know, that that would be my my business my business partner at Go Nimbly, Jason Reichel. He gave me the original opportunity at Blue Wolf and hired me there. And I've worked with him uh, ever since. One piece of advice for people who want to have your job someday. Yeah, oh, geez, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> a piece of advice that I, I mean, uh, don't. Uh, I, well, yeah, I would say, I would say, don't, don't go directly into operations. There's a, the, there's a principle in lean manufacturing called go and see, and and I, I think that that's really important where you you actually experience the problems. Um, because you you have to have empathy for the end users. You have to have empathy for your your stakeholders. And there's no better way of doing uh, doing that than than actually building sympathy by doing the job for a bit. So I I love that a lot of the most successful people that I've hired in in the past 
have come, you know, have been previously been an SDR or previously been a marketer. And those those people, because they they know the process and they and they they have sympathy for their stakeholders. Thanks so much to Ian for coming on and being our guest on this episode of Operations. That's going to do it for us. Remember, if you are interested in going to Hypergirl San Francisco, the code is Operations99. Get your tickets today. Also, if you like what you heard on today's episode, make sure you've listened to all the previous episodes and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, six-star reviews only. Thanks very much. That's going to do it for me. We'll see you next time. 